This September, Salon London took to the countryside for festival number six, set in the breathtaking village of Port Merion. We were asked to curate around the theme of identity, and in typical Salon style, we showcased experts from across all disciplines, art, science and psychology. So for our Sunday Salon on identity for festival number six, we had vocal coach Juliet Russell, theoretical physicist David Tong, and Nikki Shale, founder of Art Macabre. Hi, I'm Juliette Russell and I, today I was doing vocal coaching. I was doing um, Why Certain Voices Move Us, but a very interactive session with the audience. But also I'm one of the directors of Salon London. For myself, I'm a bit of a lazy speaker. I speak with quite a low larynx and it's quite deep and I probably should speak a little bit higher up in my range. But as a singer, I think I've learnt to... And I've worked with loads of different people for myself because I think it's really great as a vocal coach to work with other vocal coaches just to find out different approaches. And I, I'm a singing complete fan like I'm a nerd about singing so I've done everything from Mongolian throat singing to beatboxing to Eastern European to pop to opera so for me I just love it. Vocal sounds have fashions as well and if you you come from Australia you use a lot of what called twang so that means you don't have to shout so much you can just naturally like reach to the end of the room and that's why a lot of people think Australian people are quite loud is actually they can be <laughs> quite extrovert um, but also it's that twang that's in their voice and what twang does is it brings the walls of the throat a bit closer together and it happens above the vocal cords so you can get a louder sound so if you're wanting to get someone's attention or you want to speak loudly adding a bit of twang to your sound really helps and we'll have a look at that so there's a book called um, Set Your Voice Free by Roger Love and he's actually done analysis on professions and your profession can affect how much you use your voice in, and how expressively you use your voice. So, so for some of you, you'll know this already, but um, tones are just basically the musical notes. A tone is two semitones, which is like half steps. So we, in Western music, we only really have 12 notes and it's easy to remember it's like... I will try to sing this scale until I get it right. And that's actually 13 because the low one and the high one are actually the same note. Um, but that's basically all our music that we have in Western society is based on those 12 notes. So people who work, Roger Love found that people who work in banking only use four of those tones. They don't go further than that. And you're, you're, it's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> Whereas if you're a bit more of a drama type, you probably use a lot more. And they, oh, you know. but, but naturally, our voice, whether we think we use our voice expressively or not, we tend to use it most expressively at its most extreme. So like, if I'm really excited, I'll probably stick a lot higher than I normally will. But if I'm really tired, I'll be like, yeah, I can barely even move my vocal cords. I can't really, and it's like that. And, and there are a lot of, um, our emotion very much has an impact on our voice. And we recognize that. Like, we'll recognize someone's intention. Like, if I'm genuinely excited, I'm going, you're going to do this really great vocal coaching session for you today. You're going to really enjoy it. Yeah. I mean, how believable do I sound? <laughs> yeah, if I want to leave now, please. Our Brains Are Hardwired for Music. There's a fantastic book by Daniel Levitin, two fantastic books actually, and we're actually built for music. We're built for listening to it, we're built for participating in it, and our voice is, like everything in our body, our voice is there for a reason, and usually the most times we express ourselves are when we're most emotional, whereas singing taps into that straight away. Like Singing songs is naturally very emotional, so yes, I think everyone could get better at singing. It's like if you practice it, you can work those muscles and you can get more attuned to it, but everyone, I think if you can speak... You can sing. When we think about tone, it's purely the sound of our voice. So what makes a voice that we appreciate is either a tone that is interesting to us or a tone that is pleasing to us. So either of those things are kind of elements of, of good voices. But like I said before, we all have our own vocal identity. And your friends will notice you on the phone without you ever saying because your vocal identity is there. You can work with your vocal identity and you can extend it. But that's part of the elements. The other element is tombral diversity. And what that just basically means is 
different sounds coming into play. Because if you, even if you've got a really interesting tone, but your voice doesn't do anything else, you, the ear gets bored quite quickly. As humans, we get very used to the sonic sound of things. So having timbral diversity, changes in tone and timbre really help us with that. Um, then dynamics. So dynamics are where you, the, the sort of, the light and shade, they're the louds and the softs in music. So bits where it changes. And when we, when we sing something later on, we'll work a little bit on that. Um, and musicality. So musicality is your awareness of pitch. So that's, that's basically keeping in tune. So within those 12 notes, as a singer, you pretty much want to hit them. You don't want to be like too much under them or over them. Under them is flat, over them is sharp. Um, and rhythm. Now, a lot of people forget about the rhythmic aspects of the voice. But we use rhythm in our voice an awful lot. And also, especially if you're speaking fast. And as a musical rule, usually when there's a lot of rhythm, you have less notes. Okay, so we can do a little bit of work on our registers. So I just want you to sing, um, put your hand very gently on your larynx, and I want you to sing, oh, 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 and. Lovely sound, well done. Okay, now that's, you can hear that's quite low, quite, is that comfortable for everyone? And that's very close to speech quality. So that's our kind of... Our larynx is in what's called a neutral position, so it's not down or up. So we'll just do that again. And I want to... There's, at the beginning, there's a... Can you hear that little uh, uh sound? That's called a glottal onset. And all that means is the vocal folds are meeting before the breath comes through. So you get that... Oh, 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 and... Great. Yay! Good. And the best singing is honest singing. You get a lot of technical singers who can sing all day long, five octaves. But if you're using five octaves to sing something that doesn't reach you, there's no point. You might as well have someone like Tom Waits who hasn't got a massive range, but his voice is so expressive and he tells a story. That's a much more interesting voice because you, you believe it and you feel like it's got a voice of experience. So, so matching a voice with repertoire is also really important. A lot of what we sing is not singing. So I'll give you some examples. Um, so yawning, obviously. Um, okay, so moaning is another one. So if I, if, tell me which singer I am. I hope I can pull this off. Oh. Brittany. Okay, I did, I did a vowel sound. And you knew it was Brittany. Does anyone what's made in Chelsea? I'm really sorry, I do. Yeah, great. Okay, so you know Lucy Watson? Well, like, he was like, creak all over the place. And I, I just said, no, I'm not having it. And like, she literally is a creak. Um, these primal sounds are hardwired into the older part of our brain. So we're familiar with them. Whether we think about these sounds or not, when we hear it in a song or in music, they, we, they reach us. And um, Pharrell does it a lot. He's another one. He does his little, like, yeah. Oh, yeah, and he's little, yeah. And it's the same with Adele. Because that, like... She's got that, you know, that little creak in her sound. That's her definitive sound. And that's why a lot of that music, the kind of big, screamy music, is, is popular. Because people are like, oh, it makes you, like, adrenalised. Did anyone see My Bloody Valentine last night? Yeah, and that, like, that's like... It's almost like a metal, that kind of adrenaline. And some voices do that to you. It's that kind of emotional intensity you don't really hear in speech, but you completely hear in certain types of music. For me, it's not right that we're in a society where music is seen as a separate thing, because actually music and singing belongs to all of us. You've been fantastic. Thank you so much. That's your number six. Thank you. Nikki Shale, founder of Art Macabre, invited us to take a new, profoundly mortal look at the concept of life drawing. The tradition of looking at life and death through art, the skeleton and the live nude model, um, sometimes 
female, often sort of a beautiful sexual woman, is actually really age-old traditional, centuries old, and death drawing is kind of just my part of that tradition. Um, so I hope I'll give you a taste of death drawing and look at this idea that through life drawing mixed with some deathly themes, you can hopefully um, not just enjoy being expressive, but also be quite reflective and just think a little bit about your own life through thinking about our eventual end. So remember, you too will die will die and that's part of our identity but what memento mori tries to do is create an image that gives us a reminder of that and i think the rather than be depressing the value in that is that you know it is that daily reminder of carpe diem seize the day you don't know when what to what happened tomorrow Um, and so these works of art are part of a tradition of yeah using live models and images of life alongside death and what i'm going to do for us to get ready to draw our own vanitas examples is I'm going to put some of these classic things on here. So we have, we have the skulls. We have another classic symbol to add to the still life that will show the passing of time. Burning candles dripping down to show how time is passing. We have also, that one of our models will be holding, a massive clock, which feel free to include that in your drawing to show again time is passing. And then in contrast, we're going to include which is very classic for Vanitas, lots of signs of living life as well. So we have flowers, we have fruit in various stages of being alive and rotting. And then we have, thinking about the idea of, yeah, worldly riches, we have some, some gold there, let's pretend that's gold. So there we have set up our part of our Vanitas. And what I'd like you to do is, if everyone can just close their eyes for... For now, for a few seconds. So I would like you to now think about something perhaps we don't like to think about that often, which is I'd like you to imagine that we're all gathered here for your funeral. So here we are, and I am the person that knows you best in the world, that loves you most, that has known you for longest, or perhaps just knows you best, and I'm going to say something, and I want you to imagine your name inserted, and then you can fill in the blank. So thank you all for coming here. We are unfortunately here gathered to celebrate and commemorate the life of, insert your name, and I'd just like to say that the three things that we'd like to most remember this person by, the three things that really stand out to us about this person and that they'll be remembered for are, and then I'd like you to just keep your eyes closed for a minute and just fill in those blanks of what you hope that those things would be. Now, if you open your eyes, that might be quite hard to think what you'd like those things to be, so I hope that in the next 20 minutes, when we're drawing, those things might become clear. So, yeah, many thanks to our models. Thank you all so much for giving some death drawing a go. I hope it's given you a taste of what we do. Next to Salon Stage was Professor David Tong, eminent theoretical physicist from Cambridge University. He took us on a journey to the outer reaches of the universe, helping us to understand mankind's place in the vastness of space. As we all know, the very beginning uh, was the Big Bang. Except it wasn't. Um, I think it's fair to say that everything you think you know about the Big Bang theory is probably a lie. Um, There was no Big Bang at the beginning of the universe. There was no explosion at the beginning of the universe. In fact, if you have the question, how did the universe start, there's a really simple answer, which is that we don't know. 
We haven't got this foggiest idea what happened to kick the universe off. We don't even know if it makes sense to ask what happened to start the universe because there may not have been time before the universe began. So it, it's just a mystery. It's a mystery I hope we get to solve at some point. But at the moment, we just don't understand why the universe started. So what the Big Bang Theory really tells us is what the universe was like when it was very much younger. That's what the theory is about. And it's based on a very simple premise. If we look around us in the night sky, all the stars and galaxies that we see are moving apart from each other. This is the statement that the universe is expanding. Which means, of course, that if in the past, uh, all those stars and galaxies were much closer together. When you look out into space, you're also looking backwards in time. So when you look at the sun, you don't see the sun as it is now, you see the sun as it was eight minutes ago, because it takes light eight minutes to travel from the sun to, to reach our eyes. And when you look at the stars in the sky, you see them as they were not now, but a hundred, in some cases, up to a thousand years ago. So all you've got to do, if you want to see the Big Bang, is just look really far back for light that has been traveling for 14 billion years. Now, that, that would be hard, except, except there's something about the Big Bang that makes it easy, um, which is that this fireball was everywhere. The fireball filled the entire universe, which means it doesn't matter where you look. Everywhere in the sky, if you look back far enough, you're going to see it. Um, the fireball lasted for about 380,000 years. Okay? Sounds like a long time, but it's, it's kind of uh, you know, a blink of an eye in, in cosmological terms. After 380,000 years, it, it cooled... And then there was what, what I think is the most remarkable period in the universe's history. Because when the fireball cooled, nothing happened. And nothing continued to happen for around about 100 million years. So let me explain. Um, the fireball cooled down, and it left behind the most boring universe you could possibly imagine. Okay? All there was from the remnants of this fireball was hydrogen atoms spread very, very thinly throughout all of space. There was a tiny little bit of helium kind of dotted here and there, but that was basically it. Hydrogen, helium, and nothing else. So what you had was a universe just full of atoms floating around and, and just not doing anything. Okay? It was extremely boring. But if you waited long enough, and long enough was 100 million years, something interesting finally happened. Because over time, uh, this hydrogen dust that was floating everywhere kind of gathered together in clumps. So there'd be a little more hydrogen that would form over here and maybe a little less that would form over here. What was happening here was just these very weak gravitational forces between the atoms themselves were very slowly bringing them together. So the hydrogen would uh, form in clumps, and as the clumps grew, the pressure inside them would increase. Until finally, after 100 million years, the pressure got so large that this hydrogen ignited. That was the birth of the very first stars in the universe. So we don't yet have pictures of the very first stars. There's actually a telescope that's going to fly in five years' time. It's called the James Webb Space Telescope, and its mission is to take pictures of the very first stars in the universe. We've got lots of beautiful pictures of stars being born there. Okay, so now the universe is a little more interesting. Now you've got stars, and inside stars, uh, you can actually do something. What you can do is you can cook. So you can take these hydrogen atoms, which is all there is in the universe, and you can start to fuse them together to make heavier elements. So inside these very first stars, the hydrogen was fused until you made basically all the elements of the periodic table, nitrogen and oxygen and carbon and iron. 
We made all the elements that we need in order to build the world that, that we see around us. But there was a problem. There was a problem because uh, the elements are still stuck inside these stars. So you have to wait a few more million years, and then those stars explode. They run out of fuel, and they explode in spectacular supernovae. So, so again, this, this isn't a picture of one of the very first stars, but this is quite a famous um, uh, star explosion. Um, we know exactly when it happened. It happened in 1572. It happened a little over 400 years ago. And the reason we know it happened is because it was seen everywhere on the planet Earth. So everybody at the time suddenly noticed there was a new star in the night sky, which shone brightly for a little over 18 months and then died away. So at the time, people were very, very confused about this. And they, were, they, they thought they knew all about the stars, and suddenly there was a new one. Queen Elizabeth the first, not the second, Queen Elizabeth even called her court astronomer to explain to her exactly why this this was happening. Um, he had no clue, of course, and he had no idea why there was a, a new star, but he bluffed his way through it and somehow didn't lose his head. Um, but then 400 years later, we look at, at where the astronomers at the time said this has happened, and, and this is what we can see. We can see the aftermath of this exploded star. Okay, so, so where does that leave us? Um, uh, the newborn stars created these elements. Uh, they exploded. They scattered all these new elements back into the heavens. And then the whole thing can start again. The, uh, these dust clouds can gather together. They form new stars and new galaxies. But now you have more raw materials to work with. Now you've got these things like iron and carbon. So you don't just make stars, but now you can start to make much more interesting things. You can start to make planets. And if you wait long enough, you can start to make life. And if you wait even longer, you can start to make small Italian villages on rainy Welsh coasts and you know, kind of all, all of the interesting things that, that we can see in the universe. Okay, so th this is the end of my first story. If, if you really want to know where your roots are, if you really want to trace them back to the beginning, um, I think it's, it's completely poetry, really. Um, we're all stardust. Every single element in our bodies, with the exception of hydrogen, was forged in the furnace of one of the very first stars in the universe, which subsequently exploded, scattering its material throughout the skies. I think some of the open questions in, in physics are actually much more interesting and, and, and set us a place in the universe in a much better way than, than some of the things we understand. Okay, so, so where are we? Um, this is, is where we are. This, this is the village. Um, this is, of course, where number six was, was kept prisoner for a long time. Um, I think there's some quite nice parallels be between what happened in the prisoner and, and kind of the laws of physics as, as, as we now understand them. Um, firstly, you know, a bit like physicists, he, he spent most of his time here very baffled and, and very confused. Um, I, I, I watched, as far as I can tell, he has three emotions, baffled, confused, and angry. There it. Um, let, let, let's stick with baffled and, and confused. Um, he's surrounded by these arbitrary rules. He doesn't quite know what's going on, but sort of part of his task here is to try and understand these rules and where they're coming from. But, but as things go on, he, you know, he makes some progress, but he really just gets more questions rather than more answers as he moves on. Um, and I think most disconcertingly, as, as time goes on, he realizes that much of what's around him is actually constructed just for his benefit. The laws of physics are a little bit like that. And we're lucky enough just, just to be on this, this tiny dot where, okay, we complain about the weather, but really the, the, the temperature sort of varies within 30 degrees or something. You know, how lucky are we just to, to be there and, and nowhere else? Um, so this... This caused sort of a big problem over, um, over time. You know, scientists would wonder, well, how, how did we end up in such, such fortunate 
circumstances. A lot of it, of course, is evolution. We're, you know, we've evolved to, to take advantage of our environment. But even so, how is it possible you know, that there's such special places that life can evolve at all? Um, and we know the answer to this. The, the answer is just random chance. And the reason random chance is a good answer is, is because of a numbers game. There's just The universe is just vast. There's many, many places in the universe where we could live. To give you an example, our galaxy alone has about 100 billion stars in it. Um, Most of those stars, we now think probably nearly all of those stars, have their own planets, which which are going around. So there's probably about 400 billion planets in our galaxy alone. But our galaxy is just one of 100 billion galaxies in the universe. So, you know, there's lots of uh, opportunities to have special places in the universe. The fact that, you know, you occasionally get somewhere like Earth, which is, which is absolutely unique but can support life, is, is not surprising just because uh, there's lots of places out there. And what's more, it's not surprising we end up here just because we couldn't live anywhere else. Of course, we find ourselves on the only place where, where life can be supported. If you look at the fundamental laws of physics, they too seem to be tweaked or designed to allow us to live. In fact, not just us to live, but allow anything interesting to happen at all. So let me, let me give you an example. Um, inside atoms is a, is a nucleus, and inside the nucleus of the atom are two kinds of particles. They're called protons and neutrons. Okay? It turns out that the neutron is a tiny, tiny bit heavier than the proton. So we don't understand why that is, I should say. We have a fundamental theory of particle physics, and, and basically that, that difference in their masses is, is one of the, the 17 or so parameters that we have to feed in. So we don't have a deep understanding for why the neutron is, is heavier. But we could ask the following question. Suppose that you try and just you know, play around with the laws of physics a little bit. Suppose you take that, that neutron and you try to make it a little heavier or a little lighter. You know, what kind of universes would, would you get? Um, it turns out if you do that, bad things happen. If you make it just a tiny fraction lighter or a tiny fraction heavier, atoms no longer exist. Okay? That's, that's how bad thing, things get. So, so the, the mass of this neutron is just, it, it's very finely tuned. It's in a tiny, tiny window where you get to have the existence of, of atoms and chemistry and interesting things. We don't know why this is. The, the one answer we have to this at at the moment. I don't know if it's the right answer. It's the only compelling answer I know of right now. And um, it goes by the name of the multiverse. Hey! (laughs) So here's the idea of the multiverse. Um, It's that uh, the universe um, we see around us, everything, is just a very small part of a much, much larger structure. That There's a lot more out there that we've never seen. And that somewhere in far-flung reaches of space that we haven't yet detected, the laws of physics themselves might be different. So then it's very much like this analogy with, with Earth. There's this huge multiverse out there, and, and over there, a long, long way away, the, the neutron is a little bit lighter than it is now, but we don't live there because there's no atoms over there because atoms can't exist. And somewhere, way over there, those ripples in the fireball of the Big Bang, they were a little bit smaller, but we don't live over there because there's no galaxies over there. And so maybe, as you go through space, there's different parts of space with different laws of physics, and just like we live on Earth because it's the one place we can live, we live in this universe because it's the one place where the laws of physics actually support something interesting like 
like us. Thank you for your attention.